All right, if you would please open to Psalm 63. Psalm 63 is where we will be in God's word this morning. Uh, We are beginning a series this month that will take us a little bit into February. Uh, And really this is, I think, a theme that the Lord is is, uh, showing for us for this entire year. And it's the theme of discipleship, but more importantly on what it's like to pursue God. And this theme that we begin today is pursuing God. What we're going to consider from Psalm 63 is following hard after God. Uh, you know, I, my, I've always been stirred by, um, excuse me, <coughs> I've always been stirred by the book by A.W. Tozer, in, uh, The Pursuit of God. Uh, and and I, a lot of these thoughts that bubbled up as just considering what the Lord would have us start the year with, I thought of that book, and I've been reading it again, and still stirred. And, and there's something about reading A.W. Tozer that ignites um, a yearning in us to know God and to know him well and to, to follow him. And I like how he says, following hard after God. And so that's how uh, that, that resource will, be, will help guide our thoughts, but really we're looking for the Lord to, to show up in very unique ways in our hearts and minds as we want to, you know, to, to consider a new year is always, it's good and irritating at the same time because new year always, that's it, good. It's good to have goals. It's good to think of spiritual goals and uh, maybe physical goals. We want to, we want to have those goals. Now it's wise to hold those loosely because Typically, we get to the end of a year, and maybe we still remember the goals that we had at the beginning of the year that we didn't fulfill. We weren't even a fraction of the way toward. And then we get discouraged and say, well, I'm not going to have any goals whatsoever. Um, Maybe a wise thing, and my wife and I are going to try this this year. We're just going to take 90-day segments. We're not going to go over 12 months. We're going to go over 90-day segments, and we're going to seek to be diligent. What do you want to do in these next three months? And then when those three months are completed, reevaluate. What do you want to do in the next three months? Rather than have this long list where we're trying to conquer a whole bunch of things and get to the end of the year and we have no idea, maybe just the list is too long and it's daunting and we don't know what to do, just make it manageable. So we, at the retreat we went to in Colorado, uh, they suggested that. <laughs> it's like this weird, well, that makes sense. Let's just break it up. Let's, let's do this as we go along the way rather than try to uh, fulfill something that, that we begin and it's already out of reach. It's already too far ahead of us. But again, we are, we're in a, a moment of rethinking things spiritually, and that's good. And we rethink things uh, for ourselves personally, but also as our church. I think the Lord is doing a, a, a work of discipleship, a reminder for us as a church. But I, I thought of this this week in preparation that, well, for one, I am very intrigued by special forces training in our military. Uh, I, I think what, what I'm intrigued by is the way that they, the, the, the soldiers who are in this training, they go through severe physical an emotional, and even spiritual stress. And we think, why does it have to be so hard? 
Why does it need to be so daunting? And, and it's almost as if it's, it's set up for people to drop out, people to fail. And so when people do finish, it really is an elite group of people, elite group of individuals that can do things that we would we'd give up in a heartbeat. You know, I, in, in hearing a Navy SEAL describe his own training as he went through it, um, he said there's a reason for the breakdown. <clears throat> the emotional, physical, and spiritual breakdown. The biggest part is to remove bad habits. So when, when battle arises, there's going to be an expectation of everybody fulfilling their duty, their job. But he also described that in those moments, when, when battle happens, and in our own spiritual lives, when trials come, the Navy SEAL said this. He said, we don't rise to meet that level in that occasion. We don't do that. But everybody acts like that's what we do. We just rise to the level of that occasion, and we have this adrenaline rush, and things happen and move. He said, that's not what happens. What happens is the opposite. We sink to the level of our training. That's why the military trains over and over and over and over and over again, because they know when all the pressure comes, when the stress happens, when the battle is there, they will sink to the level of their training. And everybody has an expectation of what will happen in that moment because they, can, they really can depend on one another. They've done it before. They've done it thousands of times. So I, I think of that, but also I connect it to our spiritual lives and really asking the question, have we really, do we train well in spiritual life? Do we train for the battle? Do we train for the trials? Most of the time, we're shocked by a trial, and we, we sink to a level of despair rather than of godly training. You know, my pastoral concern is that we, we have reduced our spiritual disciplines to five-minute devotionals that are emailed to us or that pop up on a social media feed. And... If that's all our diet is, and, and you have to think about this, that diet, we're interacting with somebody else's experience of God himself. So really, it's, it's leftovers. It's, hey, I had this great experience, you can benefit from it. We don't, we don't go to the source enough. We're, we're using these leftovers, and we, if we do that, church, we, we can't be surprised when we're shocked by trials. I can't believe this is happening. Or we get into this despair mode like, God, are, are you anywhere to be found? Well, we have a responsibility in that. Have we trained properly for those? We know they're going to come. Have we trained properly for them? How's your training been? How does spiritual discipline show up in your life? Time in the word, where does that show up? Time, length of prayer, to learn to listen for the Lord rather than just give requests. Meditation. Do we give time to think really hard about God? Where does genuine fellowship show up? When, when do the conversations in our lives go deep enough to find out who we really are and who the friend that we're sitting next to is and, and the, the, the stressors that are happening in us bearing those burdens together? Does it show up? Personal worship, does that show up? 
Stewardship of your finances. Those are spiritual training mechanisms. How do they show up? My hope and prayer for our church is that this year we will hold on to Isaiah 37, 31, which says that the surviving remnant within Judah, as God brings his refining pressure upon Jerusalem in the exodus or the exile experience, when Babylon finally comes, Nebuchadnezzar comes and removes people from that place, God's after something in his place. His place, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the place of his presence on the earth that his people have neglected. God's after something. He said a remnant's going to be here. And what they're going to do is they're going to they're grow downward to bear fruit upward. That's what I hope the Lord accomplishes for us this year. I hope he accomplishes we will grow downward in order to produce fruit upward. And to get us started in this training, we will look to King David in a, another weary wilderness experience that he had. This psalm takes place when David fled Jerusalem. This is later in his life. Last week we looked at Psalm 23, early in his life. This one is David at the latter portions of his life when he actually fled Jerusalem because his son Absalom for two years had sat at the city gate. And the Bible says he stole the hearts of the men of Jerusalem. The men of Israel, he stole their hearts away from David to himself. And when he had enough people around him, he said, now's the time. He overthrows David, sends David out. So David has fled, doesn't know if he's going, literally going to die. Because his son, Absalom, has seized the kingdom. David's wilderness that he writes about, it was physical. But also was a a visual display of what was taking place in his life emotionally. So he goes, how he responds. When we read and learn of how he responds, he goes spiritual in order to help himself emotionally in the physical wasteland that he was in. So let's look at Psalm 63. It says, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword, and they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of the liars will be stopped. Lord, we ask that by your spirit we would have your word illuminated to change us. Jesus, we want to see you. We want to understand you. 
to the lives that we live really are different. So when trial comes, Lord, we're able to rejoice because we've trained well for that moment. Lord, we love you. Have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What we read in this psalm is the direct result of David's spiritual training. So here's our our big point to consider. When David was face-to-face with his harsh situation, he ran to God in hard pursuit. So when there's a harsh situation, he went hard to God. He followed hard after him. In the first stanza of the psalm, we, we see that inward experience leads to outward expression. David is remembering something on the inside of his relation, in his relationship with God, and it's producing something outward. What was his inward experience? The very first thing is he re, he's reminding himself, more than he's reminding God, he's reminding himself of his identity in God. He declares his relationship with God. Look at verse 1. Oh God... These are powerful words. You are my God. He's standing on this promise. He's standing on the reality that his identity is not in himself, a a, a product of his own effort, a product of his own morality, a product of his own righteousness that he can derive on himself. He says, God, you're God. You're my God. We hear both a reverence but we also feel a tenderness in his addressing of God himself. See, oftentimes we, we are deficient in our view of our identity in Christ, in God, in God because of Christ. We are deficient because we lean more to the other, to one or the other. We, we might only think of him in holy reverence. He's too powerful. He's too great. He's too wonderful. And, and my life is, is reduced when I think about him. That's appropriate for us to think about. But when we go too far, we, we forget the tenderness component. We'll grow frustrated in our relationship with God. We'll actually feel a distance that God never creates and he never wants. We create the distance because we don't feel that we're worthy enough to be in his presence. But then on the other side, we can, we can treat God so tenderly and we can, we can have, we can uh, glory in his tenderness as our God so much that we forget that he's a holy God with eyes of fire. And he, he pays attention to everything that we do. And so we, we, we rejoice in the forgiveness of God, but we rejoice in a tenderness. We, we rejoice in a tenderness so much, though, that we expect God to overlook the little things in our lives that we constantly overlook because they're, they're either sinful, they're unwise, and they trip us up in our spiritual lives. They sabotage our spiritual training. We need both. We need a a reverence for God that recognizes his power and his glory, but we need to understand also equally alongside of that, he is a tender savior. He's a tender shepherd for us. And to put those together, we have a God that we love because of who he is, not because of who we want him to be, try to figure out who he is. God's people have historically struggled to embrace their identity as his covenant people. They also have struggled to believe his promise that he will lead them to good. We do that. We want good from God. We trust that promise is going to come. But if it doesn't come fast enough, 
we'll take things in our own hands. If it doesn't, if we have a prayer and God's not answering that prayer the way we want, and it's not, maybe not, the, not in the time frame that we want, we'll, we'll try to manufacture and manipulate the outcome of that prayer so it benefits us. What are we doing? We're testing to see if we're really God's, to see if he's really ours. Are you my God? But here's what we do. We create these very strange and weird criteria for God to meet in order for us to feel that he loves us and he's there for us. And we blame it on the story of Gideon. Gideon had his fleece. God calls him to go uh, defeat the Midianites. He puts out this fleece. I don't know, God, and it's not me. Just can I have the fleece wet and everything around it dry in the morning? And God comes the next day and the fleece is wet. He wrung it into a bowl. Everything else was dry. And he says, well, can I, this time, can the fleece be dry and the ground be wet? God does that. Now, we take this, I think sometimes, selfishly. We use the story selfishly to try to, get, to, try to feel, God, are you, are, you, are you really with me and on my side? And we put out these fleeces. And we use these spiritual terms to kind of test God to see if he really is going to be there for us. So, if we felt that he's abandoned us, we'll create reasons for him to show up in our understanding. And if he doesn't show up the way that we want, we'll reduce our trust in him. Can't trust God as much. He didn't come through for me. If we don't feel his acceptance and his forgiveness, we will hold out our performance. Here, God... I did this for you, and I did this for you. Accept me, right? But when we don't feel God's acceptance, because he doesn't deal with that type of currency, it's like trying to pay Monopoly money at the store. It's not going to work. We, God doesn't accept the currency of our, our performance and our good works. He accepts the currency of our trust in him. But when we feel we're deficient because of our de- performance, God must feel I'm deficient because of my performance. We don't have faith in God then. We sink more into self-sufficiency. See, whenever we drift away from God, God, you are my God. Whenever we drift away from that, we embrace self-sufficiency. We embrace, I got to do it. I got to muster up the energy and the strength. Because we think if God won't do it, I'll have to. And in our self-sufficiency, listen, we will seek out our own sources of nourishment and water in the dry we replaces when our soul is faint. Just like the Israelites. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, this is what God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The, is- the people of Israel thought that God didn't come through for them quickly enough. So they went out and said, well, we don't get water from God. We're going to, try to, we're going to dig our cistern, and we're going to try to put some water in there. So when we, need, when we need something to come through for us, we can just reach right there and get some water. But the problem is that that cistern is broken, and it will never provide what we think it will provide. So we build cisterns for our own significance. I don't feel significant. I don't feel like God sees me, pays attention to me enough. So I'm, I'm going to build a cistern over here, and I'm going to have a, a, a water source that I think will give me that, a, that 
significance. So it typically shows up in our relationships. We use a relationship as a water source. Please make me feel significant because I don't feel it from God. We build cisterns for our own control over situations. And really, whenever we're looking to control something, it's just because we're hiding fear. We're afraid. We're afraid of being known. We're afraid that people will understand who we really are. So we want to control situations, control who we're around, how we're around people. And we also build cisterns for our own comfort. We build a cistern of of financial security that will comfort us. But that doesn't comfort because there's never a level of water in that cistern that satisfies us. Because what happens? Continues to drain. It's a broken cistern. These are broken cisterns that never hold any water to give us the spiritual and emotional and physical relief that we long for. David went to God so much in his life that when he was faint in a land that literally had no water, he didn't start digging to try to build another cistern. He started praising. See, praise is simply us telling God the truth of who he is. And we tell him that loudly and we'll proclaim it confidently. Not to convince God to be kind to us and to love us. We do it to remind ourselves that he is a great God. And he is my God. And our identity is is wrapped up in his steadfast love. This is the second thing of, of David's experience, this inward experience that leads to this outward expression of praise. David's favorite phrase for his relationship with God is steadfast love. He has seen his steadfast love. It shows up from his youth to his old age and all ages in between. God has been faithful to him in his steadfast love. It showed up and it stayed with him even when God had every reason in David to abandon David. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't respond to us based on our performance, how well we've done for him that day. He says, I'm with you. David clings to that. This is why David can say that God's steadfast love was better than life. Anything life can offer to console his weariness. See, that's the the cisterns we're looking to. We're looking to just make me feel at peace in my weariness or give me some type of relief in my weariness. David said, no, your steadfast love is what keeps me. So I'll bless you. I'll bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I'll lift up my hands. Here's the outward expression. First is verbal recognition. Verbal recognition. Say, he said it out loud. He wrote it in a song to be able to say it, remind himself over and over and over again. Sometimes we need to speak out loud to our own souls until we're convinced of the truth that we long for. We need to stop also. Stop listening to our thoughts so much. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that the biggest issue with Christians and when we're feeling spiritually depressed, he says that we're listening to ourselves more than talking to ourselves. And we listen to ourselves all day long. All day. We need to learn to listen to the truth. Listen for the promises of God in the scriptures and say them out loud over and over and over again. And we also, that needs to result in a worship. Sometimes, 
there, there are very, and that should be a discipline that we're practicing is personal private worship. I have a, I have a playlist that I use when I'm driving around, when I'm studying, when I'm praying. I, I have a playlist. It's the same. It's a lot of hours long. But it's so unique in how the Lord, when a song is on, he'll just use a phrase in that song to remind me of his presence or remind me of his love, remind me of his goodness, remind me of his faithfulness to me. Do you have your own personal playlist with God? It's, it's all right to have the old songs that you just love. Because when, when my favorite worship song comes on, I usually stop and I worship. And I thank the Lord. Sometimes singing out loud, sometimes just listening again to the words and have them nourish and, and satisfy my soul. And he says, I'll lift my hands. Raising hands is it's a wonderful demonstration of our surrender to God. I got nothing, nothing in my hands to bring you, Lord. Here, I trust you. I trust who you are. See, where his enemies want him to raise his hands to them, he's raising his hands to the Lord. He's not giving up in his weariness. He's going and pursuing the Lord. In the second uh, stanza, verses 5 through 8, we, we find that his past experience, David's past experience with God now, fuels his present reality. And each of these things, they build on the other, so his soul is watered with the Spirit of God. It actually begins, uh, I think it begins in verse 2 with beholding, when he's in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He's remembering, remember he's in the wilderness, he's not next to God's presence on the earth at that time. So he's remembering to when he was, and the impact of those times. And I would pause and say this. Lord, please bring this about this year. I hope for us as a church to have experiences together, gathered together as the church that we remember for all eternity. Because I have... I have so many memories of being in church as a 10, 12, 14, 20-year-old. It's still affect me. They still affect me. I, I, have, I have memories of saints that are now with Jesus in his presence for all eternity. And how their gifting or their song or them, their prayer over me, it impacts me today. That's why we want to be together as a church. And that's why I'll ask and challenge. Please make Regular attendance in church, a priority for this year. Here's the irony of it. I'm saying that to you. You might be sitting in your den, comfortable on your couch. Maybe you're riding in your car, listening on the way to something else, fitting this in on the way to something else. Church, God still values his gathered people. And we in our spiritual training, we need to value it the same way. Because I'm hopeful that the Lord will use our times together and and I'm hopeful to ask the Lord for for prayer time direction so we can say, "Let's, let's minister. Let's minister to one another. 
And I hope and I pray that we will have lasting memories from these experiences that will, will take us into eternity and we will celebrate with Jesus in eternity. Now these experiences, this beholding, then look in verse 5, leads to satisfaction. And then it leads to verse 6, meditation. And then it leads to rest. And then verse 8, it leads to following hard. My soul clings to you. That, that also can say, my, I follow hard after you, God, because of what I've, what I've seen in you. So, beholding God, David's past memory of power and glory of God's presence, it fueled his desire for more experience. And then he's satisfied with God more than anything the world can offer him, with the richest and fattest foods, being in God's presence, tasting and drinking of his waters. It's better than any feast we can ever imagine on this earth. So beholding leads to satisfaction, which then leads to thinking hard about God. This is our struggle. He says, I'll remember you. And when's he remembering him? When's he meditating? Upon my bed in the watches of the night. He's saying, I think, two ways. One, when my sleep escapes me, and I don't know what to do, I'm going to think about you, God. But he's also saying this. I'm going to think about you even if it means I don't sleep. So I can think about you and remember you and bring the glory that you are into and, and, and recognize that glory as part of who I am and, and, and relish and, and be satisfied in that glory. See, thinking hard about God requires time and thought. We don't like to do either these days, church. We don't take the time. And we, we spend so much time listening to and scrolling through things that tell us what to think rather than us take the time to sit before the Lord and say, God, you tell me. I want my mind to be washed by your word. I want my mind to be renewed and think excellent and pure thoughts. We need time and thought both are fleeting in our culture. We live in a culture that doesn't value time and doesn't value thought. Uh, uh, thought that, that's rigid and long-lasting. Like, what do I really think about this? Our culture values, no, let me, let me convince you what you need to think about this. And that can happen spiritually. If all of our spiritual diet is simply what other people have interacted with the Lord over, we're, we're trying to live out what God's showed them for their personal walk with him without, without us saying, God, what are you telling me? What's your unique promise that I need to believe and hold on to right now? Meditation is tough. Partly because, mainly because it stretches our minds to the brink of our conceptions of God. See, the, the original word for meditation is to think really long and hard. When we do that, think about a math problem. We don't like math because it stretches our conception and we want it to be easy. But God uses every learning a language. It stretches and brings us to the brink of who we are. and We feel like we're losing control and we feel like we just will never get it. But then there's breakthrough. We get it. It's the same spiritual life when we think hard about these things. Now, there are some things that we will never get. But when God shows himself to us and we think hard about those things, 
we will just want more of him. And it brings our minds to the brink of our conceptions so we can recognize how God really is God and we're not. And then look, it leads to verse 8. My soul clings to you. I follow hard after you. But what does David discover? Your right hand upholds me. See, David is saying, I'm clinging to the one who always is clinging to me. That's what I'm doing. I'm coming to you and, and our spiritual disciplines, we recognize it's, it's not this criteria that we're putting. It's not these standards and rules that we're putting on ourselves for us to perform well for God. They're, they're to train us. God, I'm, I'm reaching out for you, but all I recognize is that you already have reached out to me and are holding me. And there's this wonderful divine and human cooperation that God has with us. And it's a beautiful thing because we, we discover him. Now look, we typically do these things in opposite order. We say, I want to follow God. So let me think really hard about him. And sometimes we'll be satisfied with that. But we never really behold his glory like we, we want in our hearts. So then we say, thinking's too hard. Following needs to be adjusted. But look at the order that David gives us. Behold him first. Behold him and be satisfied in him. And then think really hard. And then the result in your soul is going to say this. I want more. I want more. God, I'm following you. And I'm going to follow hard after you. We see this picture in Paul's life in Philippians chapter 3. He says, indeed, a very familiar passage, but let's listen. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He doesn't want those things back in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's beholding what he used before to behold him was unsatisfying. And he says, I don't want the unsatisfactory things. I want God. And it results, what, in following hard. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Identity. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He came after me. He's got me. Of course I'll follow him. Of course I want to be with him. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Follow hard after God. In the last few verses, the last stanza, we see that truth is prevailing in David's trial. We all want to get to the point where we rejoice in verse 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. We all want to rejoice in the face of our fiercest trials. Whether they come to us in physical form or emotional stress or spiritual dryness, we want to exult in him. We want to experience him in joy. Amen. We want to experience joy in in the face of our fiercest trials. And when we are spiritually trained, we will rejoice in the truth. We can know God's steadfast love so intimately that we rejoice in his love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13 verse 6 says it Love rejoices in the truth. Rather, we want to rejoice in the truth rather than rejoicing in our attempts to seek our own validation and significance in the relationships of our lives. And when we do this, we just, we test God. 
God, if you really are for me, if you really love me, then you'll tell that person they're wrong. You tell that, that person, no, I'm right, they're wrong. And that's, we entertain those thoughts in our heads. And Jesus says, don't test God. Don't put him to the test. And remember who was, putting, who was challenging Jesus to put God to the test? Satan himself. And we have to know our enemy. Satan. This, look, but those who seek to destroy my life, for us, it's Satan. Satan is seeking to destroy us. Jesus said of Satan, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Satan doesn't want us to live an abundant life. He wants us to walk in our shame. He can't take us away from God, but he can make us miserable in our relationship with God. And he lies to us. He's the father of lies, Jesus says. And I think we entertain his lies so often that we think God's truth is for somebody else. That can't be for me because I've been stuck in this so long. God must want it now. Satan is a liar and he lies to us and his lies, see the mouths of the liars will be stopped. The lies will be put under the sword, the power of the sword for complete destruction. I, I just... Ask the Lord for us. What are some lies, specifically for our church congregation, our body? What are, what are some prevalent lies that we might be believing? And here's, the, here's what I believe the Lord gave me. There's, there's a whole lot more, perhaps, that we might battle with. But these, I think, are appropriate for us to consider. The first one is this. I'm worthless. And we struggle to believe the, the promise of Luke 12, 7, that we are of more value and the sparrows that God takes care of. We often think, no, he probably cares for the sparrows more. We don't, we don't know, we don't trust his opinion of our value. So we believe we're worthless. Or we may believe, I'll, I'll get hurt. So we, we may recoil from relationships because we don't want to suffer hurt. Might be recoiling from a spouse relationship child relationship because you just don't want to get hurt again don't want to don't want to trust the church again don't want to trust a pastor again i'll get hurt and we struggle to to really consider the promise of romans 8 37 to 39 that tells us nothing will separate us from his love nothing another lie we believe is i am my good works i am the sum total of what i do for the lord and we promote our performance. We promote our self-sufficiency before God. And we, we go to him and, and we want him to glory in our good works. And he doesn't and we struggle. We don't understand the promise of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have his righteousness, not our own. That's what Paul was saying. I'm not trying to get my own righteousness. I tried that before. It didn't work. God didn't accept it. He accepts our trust in Christ. Another one would be, I am too messed up. A lie that we give into. I'm too broken. I'm beyond repair. And we struggle to believe 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that, that says his grace is sufficient for me. His power is perfected in my weakness. We pay more attention to our weakness than our power rather than seeing our weakness as the opportunity for God's power to show up. 
I struggle. I'm too messed up. We might believe the lie that I'm alone. Even in, even in the group of people, I'm alone. I'm just alone. And God, maybe you think that God wants it that way. <clears throat> Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Fear not, I am with you. We're never alone. If we have the Lord with us. Another lie would be, I, I have to do it. I have to do it. I have to bring things about. And we don't trust Jeremiah 29, 11, that he knows the plans he has for us. And therefore, our, the life of, of blessing that he has for us, we don't trust that promise. Because we think, no, 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 he's, he's blessing everybody else. I've got to do something. I've got to do this. A couple more. The lie that I am unnoticed. Nobody notices me. God doesn't even notice me. And we struggle to believe the promise of 2 Chronicles 16.9 that God's eyes move to and fro throughout the entire earth to seek to strongly support those whose hearts are his. And if we trusted him, our heart is his. So we can expect his support. He sees us. He sees you. He sees you. And a final one for us to consider is a lie that we believe is I am afraid. I'm just afraid. And we struggle to believe Isaiah 43, 1, that says, Fear not, you are mine. See, I, I love how God gives us scriptures that says we are his, and he gives us more scriptures that we can look at him and say, and you're mine. He says, you are mine, and we say, and you are mine. Because it keeps on going to our identity in Christ. Our identity is found in verse 8. Your right hand upholds me. Why? Because of what Jesus did for us. He secured our relationship with him. He secured our identity in him. And he promises to bring it about. He promises to fulfill and complete his work in our hearts. So church, training begins now. And, and we have to start small and be faithful with small. Let's start with, start with a giant list. Start with one thing. One thing. What's a fear? Maybe the Holy Spirit brought to the surface for you that you say, all right, this. God, I want your, you said we're more than conquerors. All right, I, I want to believe the truth rather than this statement. I want to believe the truth about the promise you have given me rather than this lie. Start there. Start there. Evaluate your goals in the categories of your spiritual life, your emotional life, your physical life. And follow hard after the one that upholds you. Follow hard. We're guaranteed to reach him because he upholds us. He upholds us with the power of the resurrection and the security that we have in our identity in Christ. Seek him in his word. Seek him in prayer. Think hard about him. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you. Thank you for bringing your truth to bear in our hearts. God, thank you for our identity in you. So we declare right now, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I will seek you. I look for you like the sun in the morning that rises and waiting for that first light. God, we, we're looking for you to show up in that way. And God, we ask that you would fulfill all of your promises and your light would shine into our days. 
And we would live under the glory of your light shining over us. And we would live with the refreshing waters of your spirit in us rather than trying to find secondary, inferior, broken cisterns thinking that those will bring us the refreshment relief we want. We trust you, God. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Look, we will again finish with our commission together. But this go today, let's think about it this way. We're going, going to God first. And we're going to see who comes alongside of us. Just go after him. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. We look forward to seeing you next week, and we will celebrate communion together. And also, I forgot to say this earlier, uh, if we have a family dinner next Sunday night, the 9th. And just bring a covered dish to share with everybody. We'll worship together and, and just envision us more for this year. So God bless you. I love you.